0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Educate Me, a podcast all about surviving and thriving in graduate school. I'm Britt, your host, and today with me, I have Becca. Becca, can you go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Britt. Um, my name is Becca Mayers, and I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at the School of Regional and Community Planning at the University of British Columbia.
0: All right. So tell me, what does that mean? <laughs> what is your reason <laughs>
1: Yeah, so my research um, focuses on cycling infrastructure. That means urban cycling, um, how we get from point A to point B to C, so on but it also focuses on the decision-making process of creating that infrastructure. So what goes into the planning decisions, um, the transportation engineering decisions, and why we create infrastructure in some locations and why other locations cease to have any infrastructure. Um, But my work, specifically focuses on the equity of that access to cycling so why are some areas of the city really densely populated with cycling infrastructure and others don't really have much
0: that's really interesting and as I'm sure you know uh cycling and cycle tracks in Calgary is a huge issue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so what for you has been the most surprising thing about your research
1: well, it, it's really interesting for me because I grew up in North York, and I um, grew up in a pretty car-centric city, <laughs> yep. a car-centric um, area of the city, which I think a lot of people can commiserate with. And realizing that it wasn't really the pinnacle of living, um, being in a suburb and not being able to access my friend's house or um, get to school in a short period of time, so. Um, it was leaving North York that I realized many things and many cities around the world do a much better job. So my, the, the biggest surprise, um, for me growing up was just realizing that other people, um, had much better access to transportation. Um, so my work is trying to enable that access, um, but one of the most surprising things thus far is just the backlash to cycling, um, and so much um, despair, <laughs> or it seems like this war on the car, and and people have made it out to be this really controversial um, form of mobility. But it's something that a large proportion of Canadians and people around the world partake in. Um, So the biggest surprise is just really hatred towards cycling. But I don't know if that was a surprise in the first place from where Uh, I came.
0: That's really interesting. And I'm curious, in your opinion, is there more hatred for cyclists or for pedestrians?
1: it depends who you are, like uh, as a car <laughs> or are you a cyclist? It's, I, it's funny because um, like growing up in Canada, there's skiers and snowboarders and yeah. um, one hates the other a lot of the time. I mean, I do both, but um, <laughs> whenever I was snowboarding, I'd hate the skiers. And whenever I was skiing, I'd hate the snowboarders, right? Because you're all in this shared space and there's not really information on how to navigate each other really well right you don't have your own skiing um lane and your own snowboarding lane you're all left to your own devices so if you can you can draw the same parallels with with cycling and pedestrians and cars where if you don't give people infrastructure and you're left to your own devices and there's utter chaos and um yeah, so it's important to create specific infrastructure f- tailored for that mobility um, so that it's really good. And when, whenever there's good cycling infrastructure, it's great to drive. And whenever there's good cycling infrastructure, it's great to bike or walk, right? But mm-hmm. when you're all left to a road and a sidewalk not knowing um, where you really belong, it's really hard.
0: Makes me really reflect on and think about, so uh, in undergrad, I did study abroad in Kassel, Germany. Mm. And it was uh, rebuilt after World War Two and and early 60s and very much built around the car, right? Mm-hmm. And so to the point where there was really no pedestrian crossings. And wow. what they actually did was they built the, uh, like, underpasses for pedestrians. Mm. However, underpasses are, became, well, these ones, at least, became very dangerous and yeah known like they're all covered in graffiti you don't go under them unless you're in groups Mm -hmm. and I mean um like castle is very safe place and yet you still don't go into these underpasses unless you're with at least two or three other people and they're all yeah basically drug deals go down and all these sorts of things so when we completely ignore uh, a whole user set um Mm -hmm. things become more chaotic
1: yeah, I mean, it's all about creating safe spaces for people to to travel, um, whether you're a kid, whether you're older, whether you have dementia, some work um, focuses on the, dement- the travel patterns of those with dementia, um, making signs that are better, navigating, wayfair. Um, there's this work that's called 8 to 80, and if you're not building your city to be okay for someone ages eight to eighty, then you're doing it wrong, <laughs> um, because not everyone can drive either, right? So, um, urbanists often get a bad rap because um, they're really for density <laughs> and right. and not uh, don't tend to be uh, for suburban areas. But it's really all about access to um, transportation, access to healthcare, access to childcare, education, what have you. Um, but enabling everyone to get there rather than just, um, having this huge barrier to entry, which is often a car or, um, in some people's cases, a bus pass or even the purchase of a bike.
0: Yeah. And so how like what what do we do or what how can we reduce some of those barriers or or is that beyond the scope of your research?
1: (laughs) I mean, nothing is ever beyond the scope of a Ph.D. student's research, right? (laughs) 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 Yes, I mean, there's various interventions. You can think of government interventions. You can think of um, private institutions. So whether that be advocacy groups playing that education role for getting people interested, um, specifically kids in bike in cycling. Um, I work with this group called Cycling into the Future um, here in Kitchener Waterloo, and. Um, they teach all grade five kids or pretty much (laughs) a large significant a large proportion of grade five kids in the region how to bike and they even enable um, kids how to maintain their own bike and um, figure out how to fix a tire but also supply kids who can't afford them with bikes so that's a pretty pretty great thing um, Mm -hmm. that this program does where if people don't have a family that can afford a bike for their for their child then they can supply them with bikes but there's often this grant that you have to apply for and um it's not super easy (laughs) um, to to do that kind of work i can think of also hub in vancouver they do a lot of education and um advocacy work around cycling but then you also have um like the city of Vancouver that supplies um, all different kinds of subsidies for things like Moby, which is a bike share for things like TransLink um, bus passes. So um, yeah, there's various sorts of subsidies that can be given to enable access to transportation. Um, Just like there's subsidies that can enable housing or (laughs) other things. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that's really good to hear. And I mean, you mentioned bike share and I think if we look at European cities mm-hmm. and then try to translate that to Canadian or North American cities, I mean, I know a lot of people thought, oh, that's, that's going to be a solution to, to traffic and, and to access and to, and to these sorts of things. But mm-hmm. a lot of, I mean, think of Calgary specifically, there's a lot of areas that aren't conducive to the bike share program because right. the city is so sprawling. Mm-hmm. Um, Versus a more densely laid out city where uh, it makes more sense to have those in certain areas. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it you are makes about-
1: the service better, right? Like mm-hmm. when you think of even bike share, when you think of car share, when you think of any kind of sharing program, you, it's really good when it's really frequent. Same with buses coming to your neighborhood, right? If you live in a, suburban area, like my area of North York that I grew up in, um, it's really hard for buses to access certain areas of the city because there's just not that much ridership. So there's this level of ridership that you have to ascertain and you have to get in order for it to be an efficient mode of transportation or to come frequently, right? You want to get the bus out like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You don't want to wait an hour and then miss the bus potentially, or the bus comes late. Um, And it's not worth it for the transit system to send a bus out there. So it's just all of these things don't incentivize people to take public transit. They don't incentivize people to bike. Um, And it's not saying that, these are the end all and be all um, of, of transit. Obviously, people have to be taking their cars for all sorts of trips, but it's about enabling a multitude of trip possibilities and having um, and incentivizing people to take things like car share or bike share or their own bike or transit, um, because it can be a much cheaper, um, more efficient, less crowded, more environmentally friendly way to travel.
0: Mm -hmm. and more enjoyable I -hmm. mean Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes
1: (laughs) sometimes you're really packed on you know a subway car and you think oh if only I had taken my car or if only I had a car or if only I had a bike but yeah a lot of the times it's it's pretty cheap and it gets you from point A to B and sometimes you chat with people on the bus that you'd never you know have that sense of community just sitting in your car like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Or you get a chance to finally read that book you've been meaning to read for, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or listen to this podcast, whichever.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, rounding back to to grad school, what mm-hmm. for you has been as uh, so you're uh, in your candidacy now and and moving towards completion? So, what for you has been one of the biggest challenges the uh, challenges that you've had to face?
1: Yeah, I mean, my answer is this sort of roundabout <laughs> answer where everything in your PhD will stop you from receiving your PhD. Like (laughs) that is my sort of slogan um, to anyone who started their PhD. My brother, he was um, just started his PhD at the University of Manchester. And I told him like, Steve, (laughs) everything in your PhD will stop you from receiving it. Mm
0: -hmm. Why?
1: And by that, I mean, there are so many opportunities, an endless amount of opportunities Um, in your department, in your faculty, in the university, broader public, um, in your courses, sitting on things like committees, working on research projects, publications, going to conferences, um, and an endless amount of reading, right, at your fingertips. You Mm -hmm. always save that um, article and you never seem to get back to the article because there's even more to read, (laughs) right, Um, and things like being a teaching assistant, things research assistant teaching your own courses applying for scholarships the list is endless and then you have things like your family commitments or other work commitments and other relationships and uh friendships to build and maintain so i think it's all about prioritizing that time um, and that work and realizing that you can't do everything, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and to sort of stay the course, refocus. Um, there's so much work to be done, and everyone's going to enable you to do that work. Right? No one's gonna gonna turn turn you down uh, to help them on their research project.
0: I feel like I, I like what you said there. I feel like I've made a career out of doing everything, so I'm really <laughs> not a good person. <laughs>
1: But right. the thing is, you have to, right? The, the thing is, is that you, like, there's so much pressure, at least I perceive this, of academia, is that I look to my supervisors or anyone in my faculty, and they are doing everything. They are doing, they happen to to be involved in so many projects and um, have their family life and juggle all of these commitments, but, what I see in them is the ability to say no to certain projects or that they don't have the capacity to do that at the time, or um, they just finish their projects and move on to the next one because they know there's always going to be one down the road, right? You're right. not losing the opportunity by saying no to it in that moment. There's always going to be more.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that is really true. And I I think that's something that it's good to remember as a grad student, because I think as a grad student, we are like grasping at all these things and wanting mm-hmm. to get involved and wanting to get published. And so we joined that project because maybe there's a promise of publication, but it's moving kind of slow. And so we jumped on a project to get published sooner mm-hmm. and uh, to remember that other projects will always come. But in a yes. truncated timeline of, of graduate school. I mean, it seems like it's forever when you're in it, but <laughs> but yeah. you know, things it's rather short. So
1: mm-hmm
0: yeah that ability to focus on okay what needs to get what needs to be done or what should be done now and mm-hmm. need to say no to other projects in order to be able to do those things
1: yeah like there's there's a lot of work uh, that needs to be done at the university everyone can agree on that it's just not necessarily you that needs to do it right <laughs> i i know you think it is <laughs> but it, you can you know stay the course and do your your bit, right? And, and try your hardest, but, um, it's also about staying your course and coming back to why you started the PhD in the first place. What work Mm -hmm. are you interested in? Is that going to help you achieve your goals? Um, what are your goals, right? A lot of PhD students, um, don't know the answer to that. Um, a lot of master's students don't, right? What What is the purpose of of starting a PhD? It's different for everyone, and um, it's about really staying the course <laughs> and and setting up these little milestones for yourself to achieve those milestones to keep making, keep having those successes, and being happy with yourself that that you're doing so. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: yeah, and I think having the strength to walk away from things as well mm. uh, I'm thinking of sometimes especially if we complete so I did my master's at the same uh, institution where I'm doing my PhD mm. and so you get involved in something whether it's an academic project or a non-academic project or student leadership or yeah. early on and mm. then there's a sense that you would just have to continue and continue and continue but i seeing now in my peers where they no longer have in it a real passion for that project, or they no longer have the time to give to that project.
1: Exactly. Or something's got to give, right? And yeah. I can yeah. think of in my master's at Waterloo, I was very involved in student government. And um, I it was an incredible experience and very important to do at some point of your academic career. But I was very lucky that I had switched institutions for um, for my PhD because all of that went by the wayside. Sorry, I can't do that. I'm at a different institution with a different email, right? Um, And sort of starting fresh was very useful. Now that you think, now that you mention it, I I didn't even reflect on that part of um, switching institutions and some of the positive things that can come out of it. Some things are really hard in switching and trying to get used to another institution and their norms and how you submit your um, grades or papers or how you deal with students. Is it through Blackboard? Is it through UW-Learn? Is it through Canvas? Whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. things that you have to adapt to um, or even just departmental cultures that you need to adapt to.
0: Yeah, so... mm -hmm. So, so speaking of switching, uh, what then brought you to UBC?
1: Yeah, so I actually, the planning department brought me to UBC. I had um, been considering staying at Waterloo at the same institution, but that would mean I would stay there for all three of my degrees. And, you know, that's frowned upon for <laughs> some reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up switching and I saw planning as that sort of, okay, we can work on these tangible problems or these problems and make them tangible in a city and make and affect real change. So I saw all of the documents that went into cycling infrastructure and the larger plans um, in recreation and leisure studies, um, or in a lot of the social sciences, you focus on the so what right? Like the social significance of your research. And in one of the planning departments, you know, introductions to students, uh, when I was going um, to see all the departments, one of the profs said, you know, we think about the so what and the what now. And I thought, what now? Like, it was my brain bursting (laughs) out of (laughs) happiness. Like, this is it, right? Like, it's not only about the social significance it's about doing something about that significance and making change and and helping people in your city or um in your government affect that change and doing research that people can use to then affect change so that was the impetus for uh for moving to scarp um and i've had great colleagues there and we've they've really helped me through the process of my PhD and sort of commiserating, but also these really nice colloquial conversations about research and, um, theory and cities and whether planning should even exist. And, you know, moving to BC from Ontario, there starts a conversation about decolonization and I don't, you know, in Ontario, it's not spoken about at a lot of universities, um, but it was front and center at UBC. And I very much appreciated that. And I felt like I got this new igniting, you know, (laughs) discussion to learn about. It was finally part of the conversation and embedded in so many of our practices for planning, for research, for the institution. So yeah, it was Mm -hmm. a really good switch after
0: all. That's awesome. So yeah, when I talk to grad students, it seems there's either they're led by the program or the department to that institution Mm -hmm. or they're led by a supervisor to that institution. So once you had selected the department, how did you then choose a supervisor or were you assigned a supervisor or how was that process for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I selected, I asked my master's committee member who is in planning, um, about who he suggested I work with. So, um, And then I reached out to them um, and then interviewed them. And it's really important to interview your potential supervisor, especially um, because it's important to ascertain the fit um, between you and your supervisor and how they would like to uh, supervise you. So there's generally... Um, And my partner's in computer science doing his PhD. So he operates on this model that's very collaborative with his supervisor where um, they work on these projects together and um, they drive the research, but then their supervisor is very much with them throughout the process. Um, But the way that it works in a lot of social sciences, um, specifically in planning and in RLS, is that the student or the PhD student generally drives most or all of the work and the supervisor is just there to check in. And, you know, if you need advice, if you need them to sort of look over something, they are there. (laughs) Um, So there's... You, you need to figure out what kind of person you need to supervise you and, and whether or not you want someone that is there sort of micromanaging your work or, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Usually PhD students are much more productive in the sort of micromanaging, um, situation. Um, but a lot of supervisors think that they don't Need to do that, or um, it's not a good thing, and it does really drive independent scholarship. So Yeah, there's that. And it doesn't need to be one or the other, but those are two things to think about, you know, this collaborative model or this independent model. They're not mutually exclusive, but it's something to talk about or at least words that you can use to interview your supervisor and see if you're the right fit for them and what's worked for you in the past um, and what might work for you in the future. I actually... um, there was this book that I read in the first year of my PhD and it's called the professor is in the essential guide to turning your PhD into a job. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that book changed my outlook on my PhD. It was kind of Pandora's box for me. I don't know about you. Did it just blow your mind in all other sorts of ways?
0: Yeah. I, you know what? I read it really recently. Um, I read it in the summer Mm -hmm. and, uh, I led a little book club on it because oh. it was on my bookshelf, and I was like, I need to read this, but I need accountability to get it done.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Led a little book club on it through our graduate college at the University of Calgary, mm-hmm. and that uh, that worked really well. And it because I've sat on hiring committees and I've been kind of behind the scenes in a lot of different ways at the university. None of it was mm-hmm. really that new. But it did give me some encouragement to just like, okay, just submit that paper. Just
1: like,
0: yeah. okay, need to move a little bit quicker on a couple of things and just push it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it also, I ended up applying for a job that I thought, yeah, you know what, like it's practice and like yeah. submitting a good application, but it's practice and it'll help me get all my documents together mm-hmm. and I'm just going to apply. So I applied to two positions. Yeah. Got an interview on the second and wow.
1: in position and got the position. So that's so
0: great. Congratulations! Yeah, <laughs> that book. yeah, that book mm-hmm. changed things a lot for me. Yeah,
1: too. <laughs> yeah. You can thank uh, Dr. Karen Kelsky for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yet another job in the books. Yeah, I, I found it. Yeah, it was Pandora's box for me because it was just so much. Right when you when you combine four years or in some people's cases, like eight years that it takes them Mm -hmm. to do their PhD into one book, it's really overwhelming, right? If you, Mm -hmm. if you take any number of years of your life and combine it into a book, it's really overwhelming, right? Um, It's like a memoir. But the interesting thing that I found with um, the professor is in is just this almost authoritative guidance that I needed at the start of my PhD to be like okay set your goals where do you want to be in this next year okay if you need to reach candidacy by your second or third year like what do you need to get there how are you going to do your comps if you have them or you know what does your research prospectus look like what papers are you working on right now what papers do you have submitted what papers are in review right (laughs) update your cv every you know few months and keep up to date make a website you know all these things that you might learn along the way and you might learn from your supervisor Um, but for me it was almost this like really authoritative authoritative supervisor that was like you need to do this and then you need to do that and Here's the guidance on writing a grant. Here's the guidance on submitting this for a scholarship or a, a manuscript. You know, start with your purpose. Why do we care? All of these things.
0: Yeah, having that roadmap, uh, mm-hmm. we rarely get in academia. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So often, we're just told to publish, and it's <laughs> well, what, like, how, where, yeah. where what, mm-hmm. and all
1: mm-hmm. and yeah, and. And I was really lucky in my master's to have an incredible supervisor who really encouraged me to start publishing my master's work so that I'd have something <laughs> um, and sort of start that that train rolling, right? And that was so important because it gave me the time to respond to reviewers or learn how to respond to reviewers um, and how to navigate failure. Um, Things like a revise and resubmit. I thought, oh, no, like it wasn't accepted. I need to revise this. They hate it. But it was really, oh, no, that like the positioning of it, he would say, oh, we have our foot in the door. Like this is great news, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's always going to be that way. You have three people who are experts in their field. You got your foot in just respond to their comments and make your paper better right like it, it was about reframing this sort of publication process as this really engaging interesting process where you can learn as a researcher um where you can respond to reviewers and yeah sometimes reviewers aren't the best <laughs> um I've been really lucky to have very positive and thoughtful reviewers um And I've tried to do that when I've been asked to review. So really taking the time to make detailed comments and um, suggestions and literature that might be useful. So yeah, it it was really helpful to have him as this re to help reframe the the publication process as like your foot's in the door. Great. (laughs) Right. Um, Just be being happy with those little wins. Right. And making those little wins for yourself
0: yeah absolutely and one thing that like that I appreciate that you said too is that when you're thinking about what you want in a supervisor you first have to know how you yourself work before Mm -hmm. and how you work best and reflect on that out before you can then ask somebody else well how do you like to supervise yes if you don't you need to know Mm -hmm. yeah if you don't you don't know which way to go once they answer your question it's like okay great now I know but
1: exactly how does that exactly
0: How does that apply to to what you're doing? So I think that's really important for graduate students to really know and understand themselves. And Mm -hmm. I remember uh, I was on a a committee once and I heard a professor say how they read everything that their students
1: write.
0: And I remember thinking like, there's no way I can do that. No
1: way! -hmm,
0: I would want a supervisor like that because I mean, yes, I'd want them to be interested in what I'm working on and in coursework and stuff, but for them to read every coursework paper, wow. I would be, I mean, you've already got the professor of the course reading it and you've got perhaps some peer feedback going on and there would just be too much.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I think for, who want that. Mm-hmm. for me, like separating the courses obviously was important um, where anything that I would ask, to be reviewed would be reviewed and reviewed in a timely manner is also important, right? Um, Because they're also, they're juggling all of these things just as we spoke about prior. So it's about, you know, keeping an open line of communication with your supervisor that is integral to the success of your relationship with your supervisor. Um, What I did, and this is going back to my master's, was sort of tell him like, okay, here's the schedule that I have planned. I plan to get this chapter to you by like this deadline. Are you okay with that? Do you have time to review it then? Right. It's not only about, you know, your own selfish needs to graduate or (laughs) maybe not selfish, but your own needs to graduate. It's about the reciprocal nature of your supervisory relationship. So do they have time to review it? Is a certain time better for them? Should you work harder to get it to them by a date that they can, you know, spend the time to revise it or look over it for you. Or, you know, think about when you're asking a supervisor to um, like write you a letter of recommendation, they're probably, if it's for Shirk um, in Canada, or usually national competitions, all have the same deadline, which means they're probably going to be writing a letter of recommendation for a lot of people. So about, telling them or asking them first um you know would it be okay if you you know wrote me a letter of recommendation more than a week in advance for sure right okay. um so and a lot of people don't do that but <laughs> but it's very important to recognize that other people also have are juggling a lot of things and your schedule is very important to keep in line um that's been very helpful for me like google's you know calendar has been you know my best friend throughout my phd and yeah it's i wouldn't remember anything without it and i rely on it a lot especially because it syncs with my phone and stuff like that
0: yeah one of the things that my supervisor uh had me do pretty much right off the bat for me mm-hmm. create a timeline especially because i was on a a leadership role that was going to take a significant amount of time away from my Research and so she had me map that out, and that allowed us to be on the same page for like the first three years. Perfect, yeah. We sent a timeline for like, okay, here's how I'm actually going to write up and finish things. But Mm -hmm. really reminded me that while so much of the PhD feels like it's all on you, because yes, the one who has to write it, Mm -hmm. there's a lot on other people too. So, thinking about supervisor having the time to review and provide feedback and your Mm committee. Review and provide feedback um, mm-hmm. added probably four months to my yeah pocket.
1: yeah yeah oh, gosh <laughs> for sure yeah even you know when scheduling your revisions or scheduling a defense date right and at least from like at Waterloo um, throughout my undergrad and my masters everyone worked in the summer because there was a co-op program and you could spend you were meant to be at school working full-time in the summer um, because that's your full semester. You're doing a full semester of teaching. Nothing is abbreviated. Nothing is abridged. Um, So I expected that that would just be the case at other universities without realizing that most students and a lot of academics take time off in, let's say, August, right? Mm -hmm. And I had had my defense date in my master's in August, right? That was just normal. I didn't think anything of it. But then moving to UBC, I had to rethink, oh no, like none of these people are available in August. They're all away or, you know, specifically for the summer. And that's always when your defense date wants to fall, right? Because you're just gearing up right when you think about the years that pass by you're done a year of courses okay you want your comps you're done a year of courses you want your prospectus right um and so on and so forth right it always wants to fall in the summer and you don't want to pay another semester of tuition so Mm -hmm. it's about thinking through will my committee be available even um at that time as well Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i absolutely and that Mm -hmm. happened to me too when i was thinking about uh, a date to climb backwards from and in terms of the defense and thinking about all like August, early August would be good. It's like, well, people aren't likely to be around (laughs) like end Mm. of like September. And I was like, well, I don't want to pay another month, another semester. Mm -hmm. Like end of August, first week of September. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Deadline you can meet to do that. So it's, yeah, it can be really, really challenging to work around all those different timelines and, Mm -hmm and to to feel like you still have some semblance of control over things. Because uh, I know there are lots of people who have ended up doing extra semesters or extra years because mm-hmm. things like candidacy got delayed because of schedules or because one person wanted all these revisions and those sorts yep. of things. So, um, yeah. Life
1: gets in the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, life happens, right? You're not doing your PhD in a vacuum, right? And everyone understands that and everyone else has all of their things going on. And yeah, it's about doing your own independent scholarship, but also doing so alongside others. And if you do succeed and go move into academia I'm saying this as you know I don't have an academic position as a tenure track faculty but um, it's about navigating other people's schedules and collaborating and managing other people's time as much as it is yourself right and students and it's really like you need to be a project manager (laughs) to to be in
0: academia right Mm-hmm. yeah I, I got to take the um project management course through my tax like the introduction of project management oh, yeah. and I think like that should be required for everybody grad-
1: <laughs> wow yeah I haven't taken it I should
0: yeah and it's well it's being offered online now too so I think that uh, it's pretty convenient to do and it's mm-hmm. free uh for grad students in Canada mm. um and to really think about in terms of okay what are like breaking it down into individual tasks and then mm-hmm. how long is that task going to take well, if it takes me three weeks, it's then going to take someone else two weeks to then review it and all these, mm-hmm. and actually adding all those in and timelining it and wow. what happens when it doesn't go the way you want it to. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a significant piece also about people management uh, Yeah, and the importance of communication and clear communication, which mm. is so vital for graduate students when, mm-hmm. you are, like you said, working, pl- like, yes, you are working on your own, on your own research, but- you're in a collaborative environment, a PhD necessarily requires collaboration Mm -hmm. and how do you manage all those people and manage expectations and manage communication styles and and all
1: that. Yeah, even, you know, working on papers with other academics or people, you know, collaborating on grants or on manuscripts. It's all so important. Um, Over the summer, I was working with a few colleagues um, at the University of Ottawa, and we were writing a paper together. And I sort of had this timeline in my head and told them, okay, does this timeline sound good? And everyone sort of agreed, but then it obviously took so much longer, because life got in the way, other um, commitments get in the way, and it ends up taking a little bit longer, but that means that it's still in review, right, and we wanted it to be in review, or out, um, or have revisions over the break, rather than, you know, into the new year, but Mm -hmm. that's just how ways, how things go, right, and Having being kind to yourself is very important, and um, managing expectations. And yeah, I mean, under promise, over deliver,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> being kind to yourself and being kind to others too. I think mm-hmm. that's one thing I'm, I've seen or in this pandemic is that you have people who suddenly are producing much more and are writing much more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, uh, like you were saying earlier, there's always something to read. I feel like I need to, I can't mm-hmm. Twitter right now because the people I follow are putting out articles I want to read <laughs> and, and they're tweeting about it and I want to read it, mm-hmm. but I just, I have to, I, and I need to stay up to date with the literature, but it's yeah. it, mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's others who, who aren't publishing and aren't mm-hmm. doing and, um, I feel like, uh, a lot of that is because of caretaking duties. And then I feel yeah. like, well, I don't have any caretaking duties. What's my problem? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> just stressing out about other people's caretaking duties makes yeah, you me. not want to do things. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. yeah. Just, yeah.
1: Just, all the things. Mm hmm. hmm. Yeah. Even, um, like in my, I think it was my third year now, um, I had got a dog and that was very important um, for my sort of caretaking of myself, but caretaking of a dog to then, you know, make exercising a priority or going outside, getting fresh air a priority instead of just coming home and eating pizza when you're stressed. Right. Yeah. Um, everyone has their sort of clutch um, or crutch Um but yeah, it's, it's been very important for me to have my dog and it's made the, the world of difference in sort of dealing and managing the time. And this could also be for people with children, right? It, it, because you don't have the time, you make the time. You prioritize your time. You have to get used to scheduling and um, knowing that you need to get it done right now because you only have an hour to do so, right? yeah, sometimes it makes you more productive um, okay. than the and and than the people who are sitting there procrastinating, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. well, to, to wrap us up, what would be your your favorite piece of advice you've received about grad school or a piece of advice that you'd like to pass on?
1: Oh, that one's hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, prioritizing your time is important. But prioritizing yourself is just as important. Mm. Is that eloquent in any way? I, I don't know. I think prioritization is so important and it's different for everyone. So you need to understand your goals, how you're going to achieve them, communicate your goals, um, and work really hard to get there, right? No one ever did a PhD without working really hard. So um Or at least I I don't know of this PhD. Someone needs to tell me. (laughs) But yeah, so I think, yeah, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and get on with it. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, you stated that really well, and I think that connects really well to what you were saying earlier in that there are so many different things that could derail you Mm -hmm. as you try to get a PhD, everything from uh, life circumstances to uh, your supervisor to, um, mm-hmm. your colleagues to, I mean, all sorts of things, a pandemic. Uh, that, and so, but through priorities, mm-hmm. um, that can, and, and knowing what your priorities are and focusing on those that can help you, um, avoid the derailment or, mm-hmm. um, manage it in the best way possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Managing your expectations on your expectations. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah. A- well, thanks so much, Becca, for coming on the podcast. It's been a mm-hmm. pleasure to chat with you. Um, oh, and we also want to chat about real quick about you started your own podcast, Dense City. Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can tell you a little bit about that before you go. Yeah,
1: yeah. I um so I started a podcast thanks to you, Britt, inspiring every grad student to start their own podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I a quick uh, a little excerpt is that um, the Density podcast it researches um and interviews academics um about their papers on the topic of cities um so it's all to bridge the gap of knowledge translation um and communicate to everyone in the world these researching these concepts about cities things like planning um decolonization biodiversity uh food security all sorts of concepts and um translating them to a layperson or even ac- other academics um so it's um it started with all a tweet about me sort of fact checking someone and being so frustrated that everyone was just talking over each other and no one really knew the answer and it was frustrating but um i figured at least this podcast we can talk to the source People um, often want to talk about their research, but they don't know what avenue to do it in. So, yeah, look up Dent City Pod wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but thanks so much, Britt. It's been great to be on the podcast, and uh, I am excited to listen in the future.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thanks again, and uh, we'll chat with you later. Great. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.